Welcome to Craft. Each month, we bring you one international writer talking about one of their works for about 30 minutes. This month, award-winning novelist, poet, and translator, Mina Kandasami, offers insight into her translation of the book, Women Dreaming, by Tamil author, Salma. Translation is often an extended and intimate practice, and in her account, Mina explains how her work on women dreaming drew alongside her own life and the technical and cultural obstacles to bringing Tamil fiction into English. Our conversation took place in two late night sessions that spanned multiple time zones, and it began and ended with a reading from Women Dreaming. Sajida Pali Lund Trimbivaram Varil, Tiruvur Marangalirundu, Kutti Kadanda, Vandavana Pukale, Tanarin the Pair Galal, Nevuti Kulam. Sajida tried to remember the names she knew of the colorful flowers that were strewn along the road on the way back from school Mullai, Malli, December, Kanakambaram. Kanakambaram Indre. She hummed the names to herself as she sprinted home. Thinking that perhaps she could cheer her mother a little by presenting her with these flowers, she scooped up the ones that were not muddied. She knew that the smallest things could make her mother happy. If Atta got her a new sari, she would be happy for a week. It was even enough just to tell her that the food she made was very tasty. Of the tricks that her father had mastered in the art of fooling her mother, this was perhaps the simplest. Atta What could the time be? Could it be four o'clock? Sajida grew sad when she realized that Atta would probably already be home. If he was at home, it was enough to only be a pair of years. There would be no need for her eyes, her brain or her limbs to carry any sort of function on their own accord. What's the need for a girl to watch TV? Why not read the Quran? Why is a girl sleeping in the morning instead of reciting the Fajr prayers? Why are you laughing? Should girls laugh as you do? Why do you run? Why do you play? Why can't you show some patience instead of all this anger? Look at your daughter. Teach your daughter to have some respect for her elders. Teach her morals. Teach her to pray. These would be the only words that she would hear. How to escape from all of this? Seated on the toilet, a precious moment of respite and solitude, Sajida would search in vain for an answer. The only way out was to get married. Women Dreaming is about this closely knit group of women who are like mothers, daughter, sister, 
wife whose lives are intertwined with each other they are the only ones holding each other up and this uh, sajida who is the daughter her mother's meher meher is facing a divorce she's also very jealous of her husband is getting married to another woman and this parveen who's left a violent marriage and then there's the grand aunt who's been blind from birth so all of these women have little dreams and they are really struggling for the smallest barest minimum but something keeps them ahead like the sense of survival the sense of female bonding and the sense that somehow they will be able to get some agency of their own which they do you know as the novel progresses and i also think it really opens up to a lot of female mindscapes so ways of looking at the world on the one way on the other hand it's also so close as though it's a universe of its own and as if nothing happened outside of it like you don't hear about the news of politics you don't hear about who is in power who is not in power anything like that the only politics that's discussed is what happens in the village for me selma represents a very dravidian kind of politics uh, she represents uh, the fact that women are in politics she's an outspoken woman and she represents a lot of very progressive things and she's fierce and she knows how to face her critics and for me all of these are really important things politically she stands for a certain kind of empowerment of women i would not go so far as to call it a feminist novel i don't think it is but i would call it certainly a novel that centers itself on women and their lives and their aspirations and the fact that they really have to struggle so much to find a foothold so i think it kind of resonates with my politics as well because often women's lives are taken for granted and i think we have to undo that kind of thinking I was repeatedly asked to translate this book and repeatedly I kept putting it off part of it is because you know I was working on some novel something else and then I was giving birth to a baby and then at some point I said yes because Amanasi Subramaniam the editor at Penguin was so insistent and then she was like trying to really make this happen and then Deborah Smith at uh, Tilted Axis and Sabah Ahmed they both they said oh we could get you grants you could find you the time but you please make the time for this book and so i made the time for this book and um, i knew selma's work from earlier on and i also think very interestingly that i don't choose books and i choose much more the author like if i know what they are doing and i like what they are doing and i align with it politically then i start just doing the work and in fact selma is the first time i've done a a novels translation so i've worked with poets and with poems it's different you know it's hardly a page so you can read it once and then do it but with longer form works uh, i have mostly done political work and with political work there's no point reading once and doing it again because this stuff is so similar it's just the same stuff that you hear in public meetings it's the same stuff that you hear in discourse with your friends you know exactly where a person is coming from so my process of translation is also that then i start reading i start translating i don't read it first and then translate i just like to start my translation itself as my first act of reading of the text everything i read i translate i read a paragraph i translate it i do sentence by sentence almost or paragraph by paragraph so that's how i do my political works but i also did the same thing when i was doing a work of fiction and i think it's quite interesting because i i didn't know the end of the story at all so you know as the women were living through this book they had these hopes they had these fears they had these dreams 
and they're wondering what's going to happen next. So I was just really caught up in that. And sometimes I think it's good. Just not knowing is in, is in itself very good, you know. I literally was like, in a sense, in the dark, but also that not knowing helps in your translation being just as natural as the end because if you know the end I think it could taint your translation I don't know this is what worked for me and this is how I went about uh, doing the translation I was living in London at the time and then I also think at some point in time I had to move to New York and then back again to London and all of this time you know I was pregnant giving birth whatever taking care of a toddler so in the middle of all of this Salma's book was like the backdrop to my life and then I continued after I gave birth to the second child as well. So, you know, I was with two little children. And unlike a lot of the time when I translate directly from the text into the computer, I was like actually writing out each sentence by hand. Because when you have a screen near a small child, they just really want to play with it all the time. And it's very distracting. So, in fact, every single page that I've written, I wrote it in these little notebooks, you know, like they're 16 or 40 pages long. And then I was really writing it by hand. For a lot of people, there's this aura around being a writer that, oh, I have a blog, oh, I can't write, I'm not finding the words, and, you know, this is not the right time, this is not the right place. But I think at some point you realize that if you don't have any too many distractions around you, but 80% of the job is just going there and sitting at your desk. And I think translation in that sense is even one step further to giving you that discipline, because not only do you have to sit there, but you don't have to think about ideas, because there is the work. And then you just basically have going to have to struggle with sentences, struggle with words, struggle with the meaning, struggle with all of these other stylistic choices or, you know, cultural things that you want to say. But in a sense, it like really pushes you into being in such close contact with words. And you don't have the time to, to be so self-aware as to think, oh, am I feeling like writing? You don't give that space. And I think it really helps you to get that kind of sort of real discipline. When I think of translating from the Tamil into English, I think it has to do with two sets of problems. I think one of them comes from the fact that they're really different languages. Tamil doesn't belong to the Indo-European family of languages. It's a Dravidian language. It's another language family. And this means the grammar is different. It means the aesthetics is different. And it means that everything from sentence construction to how descriptions happen, all of these are different. The other thing about Tamil is also that we have a 2,000-year-old convention of how landscape should be described or how emotional feelings are transposed on certain climates, certain landscapes, and certain time of the day, this kind of thing. So we carry all of that. <laughs> we carry all of that tradition with us. So like, for instance, you look at the evening, that's the time you're supposed to miss your lover the most, that's the hour of the pining, that's the hour of waiting for the parted one, the night is the hour of the clandestine sexual encounter, <laughs> and dawn is the time when lovers are separating, and therefore it's a very painful hour. And nobody says this, but it stayed in language for so long, and then there's no way you directly translate it, because even if you translate that on a word-by-word -word level, you're not able to translate the convention that surrounds Tamil. On the one hand, you can make this work really 
reach people but on the other hand how much are they able to access or how much do they understand or learn about tamil for instance in 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 tamil nadu you have cattle right so people paint the party colors on the horns of the bull to show their affiliation politically but which means that the bull's painted horns are one's political affiliation so but this is part of a cultural thing you know a cultural trait so these kind of very colorful examples and with salma it was not the colloquialism that i was worried about as much as i was worried about the subtlety of capturing what she was trying to say the other struggle was i think the pressure from the editors so when they sent this book to me i said earlier my editor she was like you really have to do this book but she also said to me meena i want salma's book to be like gypsy goddess i want you to bring the same energy I, and i was actually not flattered that she said that because you may like what i write and my style but i think that a translator has to be the person who lets the author shine which means lets the author have their own style and if i felt i was superior then i would like to make her like me but i don't feel that i don't think you're like that salma should be salma if i'm translated into tamil or arabic i should be myself so uh, that was where i put my foot down like you have to retain her you have to retain the way she writes her sentences the way she writes her description for instance after the reviews came out i saw in so many of these reviews that the women are weeping all the time or they're like there's so much hopelessness but the thing is that salma narrates in real time if she's writing fiction as experiment i think she would play but she's writing fiction as life and then i can obviously go and take this to the chopping board and make a very different book out of it and i was like no because the more you read it as the way she's written it then the more you understand her story like these women don't know the end like if they know the end they would possibly be blessed if all of us know how our lives would play out we wouldn't spend so much time being anxious or overthinking but it's all of this anxiety all of this weeping all of this overthinking is just because we don't know what lies ahead This is a strange dynamic between my life as a writer, novelist, poet and my life as a translator because I think it's one thing to look at the books that I've written and realize where I am politically which is another thing to also look at the translations I have done and see how my choice of translation has been formative in shaping my political trajectory I've always chosen works that speak to me of a particular political moment so for instance when the genocide of tamils happened in sri lanka in 2009 i did this book called waking is another dream so these were poems by tamil people who were remembering the genocide and trying to talk about what had happened to them and then there's the translation of periyar's feminist work from the 1920s called why were women enslaved So this was another book I did and it's very important because it kind of lays the groundwork for Tamil feminism which has followed and I think even Salma would look at herself as a Tamil feminist and I often look at translation as a very political activity it's one way in which you you kind of 
take discourse for, that's happening in one particular context and push it outward. Like you say, this is something that has to be discussed on a national level, on a pan-Indian level. Why not even a global level? We don't only import ideas from the West or Europe, but we have to send out our ideas. We have to talk about what is troubling us. So that's, I think, the politics behind my translation. The English department at Queen Mary University of London is proud to partner with Wasafiri magazine on Craft Podcast. We are committed to supporting hashtag inclusive English in our MA English literature and undergraduate programs. We champion marginalized and underrepresented writers in our curriculum approaches, teaching and research. Find out more about what we do by following at QMULSED and at craft underscore podcast on Twitter. I would like to talk about Hassan a little bit. As much as this is a book about women, there's one central male character and how his radicalism, his sort of conservatism starts affecting each of their lives. He causes bitterness with his mother, he controls his wife, he abuses her, he controls his daughter, he plays with her life and then he becomes a sort of preacher and he, you know, makes all the women subscribe to orthodoxy. And there are many Muslim men who come to me and said, why do you translate Salma? And I was like, why? I was worried about the fact that I'm a non-Muslim and they were worried about that. And they said, no, no, we're not worried about you. You support us in general. But Salma is a Muslim who is Islamophobic. And their conception is that she criticizes Islam so often as to open the doors for Islamophobic people to actually hijack her arguments against them. So they said that this character of Hazan is somebody who is, you know, the typical version of the Muslim man from whom Muslim women need saving. Because that's also a very interesting stereotype which the West likes to believe that a Muslim women are enslaved, they are in need of saviors, and these saviors are, of course, white people, right? And this is how geopolitics, all of this is being played out. And Salma said in an interview that I wouldn't want this book to come at such a time, because it is, you know, when she was writing it, this kind of intolerance against Muslims didn't exist, and something like this, which is so critical, would actually feed the fire against them. And she said, I have decided that now is the time for me to stand by my community because it's facing assault, and this is not the time for me to be critical of what's going on, like the criticism has to be internal. So Salma herself has the entire, you know, shift of perception, but all of which is dictated by the larger politics around what's happening to her. I remember vividly finishing this book and the book doesn't end on a... <laughs> I shouldn't do spoilers here. It's like at some point, some of these dreams are being broken, right? I felt for me like letting go of some despair, but it also felt for me like that the book doesn't end where it ends and I would like to imagine a different ending for it. I think the story has to write itself in your mind. The story ends on one point where her parents want her to do something. But the question is, it's so much in the reader's imagination. What if she decided to do something else? What are women capable of? I 
அம்மாவின் குரல் தீராத கவலையையும் பதற்றத்தையும் கொண்டிருந்தது Saji could feel for the first time that someone else's actions could perhaps bring her own education to a sudden halt. Adivayiru digirana kavvi pidithathu. She felt as if her insides were on fire and equally as if she was floating apart from her own body. Iru dalthamaga mananilayode disassociated instead of responding to her mother she simply switched off her phone. தொலைபேசியை அணைத்து வைத்தால் I've been through many things in my life where you expected to behave in one manner and then suddenly you find the courage to do the exact opposite because that means you are who you are and so I read this book and I was this, felt this absolute despair because you watch this girl dream and dream and dream and dream and then this is a point at which there is this possibility that the door can completely shut on it and so i felt that absolute dread and then i finished the book and i thought i have to think about the story and sajida should live in my mind as somebody who rebelled against what was being forced on her and yeah in my version of the story somewhere which is not in the novel i think she's a free woman i think she's a very educated woman so in my mind she plots an escape Craft is brought to you by Wasafiri Magazine and Queen Mary University of London with funding from Arts Council England. Our theme music is by Josh Winneberg. Our logo is by Ala Al-Saraji. Emma Barnaby does our production, editing, and sound design. And the interviews and the introduction were done by me, Malika McIntosh. See you next month.